Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Extra Sauce Podcast. It's my fancy sauce. I want some fancy sauce. Yeah. Not done using it. With the czar of sauces, Greg Hill. This is it, Volume 1, Episode 1 of Extra Sauce, my weekly podcast, which will follow up on the Hillman Morning Show content that we felt may need a little extra sauce. And and uh, never let it be said, Shu, that even on my deathbed, uh, I am not here for you and, That's for, right. and for the listeners. And at least we'll know why that I end up in the emergency room hacking my lungs out. Yes, you drew the short straw on that That's this, right. this week. That's this right. Week. Um, now, I do want to point out when I say weekly, that does not take into uh, consideration my five weeks of vacation, <laughs> sick days, federal holidays, uh-huh. and personal days. Right. Okay. Um, and and Shu is here as the co-host this week, and on a rotating basis, I will be joined by some of the greatest talents in the industry, like Danielle and and uh, Lyndon Byers. I was wondering who that was. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. So about. was I. Yes. Um, on this first episode of Extra Sauce, we will get extra sauce from Ken Kratz, the uh, prosecutor in the Stephen Avery case. We'll also get it from the dude you banging that boat woman from from <laughs> Brighton, and we'll get extra sauce on Sting's Oscar-winning performance on the Oscars this past Sunday. But first up, were those of us who watched Making a Murderer on Netflix and believed Stephen Avery was innocent, duped by the filmmakers who used deceptive techniques in creating that documentary? It's a question we asked on the show this past week after interviewing the prosecutor in the case, Ken Kratz, and it's one that we thought needed a little extra sauce. So Ken joins us right now to delve a little deeper into it. Thanks very much, guys, for having me. Appreciate it. One of the things that happened when we had you on last week was that listeners were demanding more. And so um, that's why we're getting the extra sauce with you today. And I, and I think that um, towards the end of our discussion, you really started to let yourself express the frustration that you have with the documentary filmmakers and the way that you were portrayed in, in making a murderer. You know, the, 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 uh, the larger discussion, there's, there's a lot of larger discussions, but one of the larger discussions I believe has to do with the documentary filmmaking industry itself. Um, they're the only ones that are going to be able to set some standards for editing practices. And as I mentioned uh, last week, you're not just going to um, not criticize or not provide any, any consequences, but you're going to give them the Emmy. You're going to make them the gold standard for uh, documentary film editing 
um, you're going to get exactly that. If this is going to be the tip of the spear, uh, can you imagine how far they're going to push the envelope until um, until the the, the, the consumer uh, is going to rise up and say, you know, um, this isn't what we thought documentary filmmaking was all about. We always felt it was a, it had a little bit uh, of a different uh, a different twist to it, and that's what makes it so compelling. That's what makes it so riveting is that you're watching something that actually happened. What would you say are the most egregious violations of documentary standards when it comes to making a murderer? Yeah. Well, um, y- you can do that in a number of ways. You can, you can talk about uh, editing practices or deceptive editing practices like, you know, omissions. Now, omissions are going to happen. That's, th- that's simply just not including everything. And that's the easy one where these filmmakers have been able to get away with saying because of time constraints um, they couldn't put it all in there, right? So, so you know, anytime you would mention there's no um, hood latch DNA or, or uh, the fact that the bullet matched uh, Stephen Avery's rifle or uh, his efforts to lure her on the property or all of her electronics are found in the burn barrel or, you know, on and on and on and on, the, the filmmakers can, can fall back and say, look, we couldn't include it all. And that's a hard thing to, a hard thing to get into that, to that discussion with because you kind of got to give them that, you know what I mean? You just, you're not going to be able to put everything in there. And all you can do then is, is complain about uh, editorial decision making and say, well, you know, some of these were, were central parts of the prosecution case, the prosecution theme, yeah. you know, why wouldn't you include those? And, 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 and of course you're going to be chasing your tail Cherry picking is uh, is simply um, uh, presenting evidence that supports only your conclusion, and and of course leaving out all the stuff that um, that doesn't. Um, but then you get into the bigger stuff, and you get into actually cutting that is removing keywords or phrases from a a, 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 a statement. Or a good example in Make Murder is a voicemail call that Teresa Halbach makes uh, to, um, to the, uh, the Avery property uh, in which she says, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming there right now. Um, and, and the making a murderer, uh, it's the very beginning. In fact, the very opening sequence of episode number two of the, of the, uh, the piece. Um, it, it, it has uh, Teresa saying, you know, I'll, um, uh, you know, I'll be there, you know, maybe between 2 and 2.30 or something like that. What they cut out, though, the five or six seconds out of the middle, the only part that they cut out uh, out of the middle of this call is where Teresa says, um, I don't know where I'm going, and I'm going to need a call back from you so that you can give me the address. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because the state's theory was that Teresa was lured to that property because of some nonsense that happened three weeks earlier back in on our short tent and so to um uh to 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 ignore or to hide the fact of this luring um they simply leave it out that's that's egregious that's something yeah. that shouldn't be done um as as a lawyer uh, and as like a regular lawyer and a da have you ever done that presenting a case maybe omitted some things to to make your message more convincing 
I don't know. Um, I, that's a good question. I don't. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't know that I have ever purposefully done that. Although here's the difference, you know, in an advocacy role, um, there's another lawyer sitting four feet away from me who is going to jump up and say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the jury, here's what Mr. Kress didn't tell you. He hid this from you. Well, you know, I don't get to sit in everybody's living room and say, wait a second, what about those five seconds that they just cut out of here? Let's set all of that stuff aside, guys, because the one thing that eclipses all of this other stuff is the practice called slicing. That's, that's the willingness to take an answer given in one area and attaching that to a question from a different area. And, and when making a murderer demonstrates their willingness to do that, uh, Andy Colburn uh, is uh, being cross-examination by cross-examined, excuse me, by um, Dean Strang, and uh, and he's asked these questions about the license plate and the dramatic, you know, cue the dramatic music, and 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 he says, you know, well, don't wouldn't you agree with with uh, with us, uh, Sergeant Colburn, that that you know makes you look suspicious that from from the outside that it looks suspicious and. Andy, uh, you know, sheepishly is, is shown answering yes. Well, well, when, and that goes, you know, and it's the last, I think the very last thing before it, the cliffhanger, you know, before the next episode. Well, when you realize that Andy never answers that question, when that yes answer is harvested from a different question and put in there, um, you've got to, somebody's got to ask these filmmakers, why would you do that? Ken, do you believe the filmmakers omitted facts and may have used deceptive editing techniques because they felt Stephen Avery was innocent or because it made making a murderer better television? You know, I thought about that very question for a long time. And, um, and I honestly believe um, it, was, it was the former. Because if it was just about entertainment, if it's just about, you know, what what is a better story or what, you know, what's a more compelling way to advance our narrative here. You can still do that by showing both sides of this case. It's still a terrific documentary if you show both sides. Um, but uh, you have to go that extra mile in order to make them look innocent. What do you think Netflix should do about season two of making a murder? Oh, I don't know. I think Netflix, I think Netflix is doing well. I don't, you know, I don't get to tell Netflix what to do. They, they, they've never answered a question, not once, on this issue, and I don't expect them to. I think they're doing uh, just what, uh, what they should, at least uh, publicly. They're going to sit back and they're going to say, you know, whatever the, the market is going to bear is, is what we're going to do, what we're going to allow. I'm not sure Netflix has that obligation uh, to do that. The bigger question, I think, is, what did Netflix know um, beforehand? In other words, what did Netflix know before these filmmakers came to them? And did they ask them, are there these kinds of things in here? Is there, you know, is there splicing? Is there misrepresentation? Um, you know, in, and especially something this um, potentially incendiary, um, you're going to want to make it in the industry what's called bulletproof. You know, you're you're going to want to make sure that you don't have uh, people screaming and, and yelling because um, there's a, 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 a defamation type of lawsuit 
um, that is called uh, false light. That is, uh, when you intentionally portray somebody in a false light, um, you can be sued, you know, a lot for that. Ken, thanks for joining us again on Extra Sauce. You guys have been fantastic, and I've really appreciated our talk. Thanks very much. As is well documented, there are a lot of inside jokes on the show and a lot of drops that we play where newer listeners are asking, what is that from? Who is that? Why is that person saying that? So one of the things that we're going to do every week on this podcast is get a little extra sauce and return to some Radio Gold moments that have occurred on this show. And there's so many. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, are there? Are so sure? very many. All right. Um, so um, we're going to go back to an Opinions Under the Influence segment, which is often referenced on the Hillman Morning Show, and listen to Ella from Brighton, who was overserved and interviewed by our former producer. Do, does she really need extra sauce? Uh, no, extra sauce. Yeah, this is called extra sauce. That's right. Yes. So we got Rubis. Hello. This is Ella. Mmm. Figuring it out. And I've lived in this country. I've lived in this country for nine and a half years. I only ever came here for. I came here. Really. Um, to save enough money because you know America is the land of the money <laughs> and guess what I fell in love with America but I have been in I went to Finway and I've been in the Heineken box <laughs> which means you drink all of the Heineken products <laughs> it means Heineken Excuse me. I'm in the back of the f- place. You left me. Anyway, I'm at the back, but I'm literally being interviewed by WAAF. I'm in the back. Liam being interviewed by WAAF. They're so excited when I say their name. Give me the address. I'm downstairs, you f- donkey. All right, this first one is uh, scientists believe we can translate what our pets say. Oh, okay. Scientists in the future will be able to translate our pets' sounds and turn them into English using artificial intelligence. I would like this to be the top comment because, yes, that is the top comment because, oh, my God, are you serious? Are you for real? Yes, of course it is. That is disgusting. That, that, can I just ask you for one second to repeat the comment that you just said? Oh my god. I hate cats. That's a thought. Listen, I see his cat, I see his dog, but I am, I am me. And I am someone who doesn't. I'm sorry, I don't care. Stop. Oh no. Stop milking me. You know what? You got me in a bad corner. I would say I'm partially drunk, but it's tough when you're kind of, you know? In Florida, a teenager 
suffered a bite to the head after he kicked a log. That log turned out to be an alligator. There's an alligator involved. It's so bad. But honestly, if an alligator was attacking me, I'd give him one look, check him out, see, then I'd get him, I'd take him, and I would put his face in my face, and I'd slap him left, right, and guess what? I'd take him into the dance party where everything else is happening. Oh my god, I can't believe it. It's an alligator. <laughs> it's gonna chalk off your head. Jam <laughs> jam. An Ohio man was arrested for having sex with a pool raft in an alley for the second time. Can I get that repeated to me once more? You said a pool raft, right? Like an inflatable pool raft. And he put his penis against it? Yes. So you want my comments? Oh. Um, is that what I say in America? OMG. Um, let me. Should should I put my against my? I would say, dude, you bagging that boat? <laughs> and he would say, yes, I'm bagging that boat. People that want sex on boats, I like really and truly. Listen to me. Listen now, be a pro, be a, listen, people are having sex with boats, is that what you're saying to me? See, now it's a whole new, look at you, I love WAF, you're such sketchy c boop, beep beep, beep beep, um, you're not sketchy, beep beep f***ers, I, I, I like can't even talk to you anymore because, why would I? Next question. <laughs> Ella from Ireland. That's uh, mm -hmm. Ella from Ireland. Take you out on and bang a, some boats. On, on opinions Jesus. under the influence today. <laughs> Dude, you bagging that boat? Um, when it comes to opening our borders up, if it's a whole bunch of Ellas that are coming across, I have absolutely no problem with that, Joe. I don't think she'd be able to make it over any wall. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're probably probably right about <laughs> yeah. that. Finally this week, during our discussion on the morning after the Oscars, we talked about Sting's performance of The Empty Chair and decided to get some extra sauce on the documentary that that Oscar-nominated song comes from. It's called Jim, and it's about conflict journalist Jim Foley, who was beheaded by ISIS in 2014. The director of the documentary is Brian Oakes, and he joins us now for some extra sauce. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I was um, immediately struck by the film you made because uh, Jim, being your being your uh, childhood friend, almost seemed like uh, as he grew up, um, he 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 took him a while, but he found his way, and I think he did a great job 
in uh, in this documentary of uh, kind of telling that part of uh, of his life story. Yeah, you know, Jim was he got into journalism kind of late in life, as far as I think journalists go. I think he was about you know I think he was about thirty six when he went on his first assignment um, to the Middle East when he was embedded with the Indiana National Guard. Um, and, yeah, his, his journey was, it was kind of, uh, you know, I think very relatable to a lot of people like us who, you know, kind of take maybe a little bit longer to kind of figure out what we want to do. I mean, he was always really interested in, in, in writing, and he was writing a novel early in his career and um, writing a lot of fiction. And I think... But his fiction was kind of based on his life experiences of being a teacher at Teach for America and and working in the Chicago prison systems. And I think, you know, what ultimately happened is like, you know, why am I kind of spinning my wheels writing fiction based on kind of real life experiences anyway, when I could be actually doing the real thing? And I think ultimately that's what led him to journalism school and and ultimately loving, you know, doing doing journalism. Um, Jim was uh, kidnapped in in Benghazi in 2011, and um, and and obviously uh, got out, came back, and then and 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 by the way, his his family. I think uh, the documentary shows most of them asked the same question that I'm going to ask, which is why? What? Why did he go back? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and it's and it's the question I had, <laughs> and it's ultimately. I believe the theme of the film, and I think it's a, a topic that not only is related to Jim, but I think for you know you could as a as kind of a metaphor for other journalists who are in conf, you know conflict journalists, um, even soldiers to a degree, and, and people who who you know even you know people who risk their lives in their careers. You know these these conflict journalists they go into these war torn areas and they see. A reality that none of us really are accustomed to, kind of here in our, you know, quote safe safety of, of of uh, you know our country, and and when they leave that environment and come back to you know to the real world, it's a really difficult adjustment. A lot of there's a lot of um, post traumatic stress that that I think um, you know Jim was suffering from, and 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 that is, you know, it, it draws them back. It's kind of like they have this almost like, um, you know, guilt that, that kind of wants to bring them back into those conflict zones and take and cover these stories and tell the stories of these people in Jim's case, you know, the Libyan rebels and the Syrian civilians who are, who are kind of suffering in these war torn areas. And, And I think there is that kind of, you know, draw that, that brings them back. Um, another layer to that question is, you know, these journalists feel like they're documenting history, and that's very important. Um, you know, I refer to some parts in the film, you know, there's images of World War II and images of Vietnam, and these are really important moments in, in the history of our world and of our civilization that if we don't document this, we can't learn and we can't move forward. And, and I think a lot of what um, these journalists feel is that they have a duty and a responsibility to, to, to document this. You point out in the film 
that the video of Jim's beheading is the second most watched moment behind September 11th when it comes to video. And and you chose not to show that beheading video in Jim. Why? Well, I mean the 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 statistic of the of the second most that was um, we sourced that from uh, the Wall Street Journal who did a who did that survey. Um, so that's where that came from. As far as the decision for the video, you know, this film ultimately was not about Jim's death. It was about his life. Um, I consider that video, it's a propaganda piece. It's, it's war pornography. It is a recruitment video by ISIS to, um, you know, to try to popularize their activity and, and potentially, you know, recruit um, people who, who might be attracted to that kind of imagery. And so that's just not in the point of view of, of the film. It's not something that I've even watched um, myself. And, and, and I think more importantly, it's not something that I'm going to put in a film because a lot of people I don't think would want to see that, and that's not a choice that I would want to take away from someone. One of the, um, you know, one of the interesting things in the in the film from a theme perspective is you know not only Jim's family but um, his friends and others kind of wondering why the United States of America didn't do what other countries did and pay a ransom for the release of, of Jim and I wonder now that the film's out and you've had time to think about that as uh, as it relates to you know a one of your best friends, a guy you grew up with. Do you have second thoughts about our policy when it when it comes to paying ransom? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, you know, I, I kind of, you know, as a documentary filmmaker and as, as a, trying to be as objective as possible, I never really wanted to form a strong opinion during the making of the film because, you know, you want to, just like Jimmy would in his journalism, he always you always want to hear the other side of the story. Like you're always trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and, and understand their perspective. And just like hostage policy, I can see both sides of the coin. Like I understand a policy that says we will not negotiate. We're terrorists. We will not give them money. We will not pay ransom because ultimately what we're doing is we are funding terrorists and they may use that money to you know go commit a terrorist um, act in in a country or on on people I understand that that perspective I also understand the perspective of the other side which is you should do anything as a country and as a government to get your citizens um, out of a hostage situation with any means possible as the as the film ends, and I was bawling my eyes out listening to the the uh, letter that that uh, that Jim had wanted to be sent home to his family. Um, you end you end it with the empty chair, the the sting song, and I, and I I think it was perfect, and I, and I'm wondering how that came about. Yeah, so that came about. It was it was pretty incredible. Um, you know, Jay Ralph, Josh Ralph, who who um, who did music and lyrics with Sting on that. Jay, Jay was our original composer of the film, um, ultimately didn't compose the score, 
Um, Dan Romer was ultimately made the beautiful score for the film. He's amazing. Um, uh, Jay ended up um, finding a song. Well, you know, let me do a song for the for the film. And he reached out to Sting, who kind of who watched the film, and at first was like, I can't do this. This is just way too hard. Um, it's too much for me to take on. Um, and the story goes that Sting then showed his wife, uh, Trudy, who said, you have to do this. And, and he was like, well, let me, let me think about that. And, and so he did. And he ultimately sat down, I, you know, in a very quick time, I, you know, he said it was like almost, it was over Thanksgiving and, and he kind of thought about, um, what it would be like if he had a family member, um, missing and, and kind of looked around the Thanksgiving table with an empty chair. And that's how he was kind of inspired by it. And, and him and Jay kind of came together and wrote it. It was incredible. And, and, you know, he, he was really, things been great. I mean, he came to Sundance film festival and performed the song back 2016 when we, when we premiered it at Sundance and has just been, has been so gracious with his time and, and his efforts and his compassion with the film and has been to multiple screenings and, and uh, I couldn't like thank those guys enough because it's really added um, a really nice element to the film. I mean, you don't, you know, you kind of you, with this film it was a little tricky at the beginning because you adding that celebrity aspect to it was like, eesh, are we kind of are we kind of walking a weird line here? But ultimately, Sting understood that and and said, you know, I'm gonna very simple and 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 kind of took us out and 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 ultimately I think it was great because he brought. Of course, of course, with the Oscar performance, he's just brought more awareness to Jim and his story, and, and ultimately journalism and, and what that, especially now with what we're going through with the political climate of journalism and, and the administration. I think it's a, even now, it's a relevant story, and, I, and, I, and any attention that you know we can get on on Jimmy and, and, and journalism, I think is is a is a good good for the country. Brian, um, this is my last question. Um, we, we've all lost somebody and I think felt like we missed an opportunity to say something to them or we missed an opportunity to tell them what they meant to us. Is this film uh, a way that you can that you could do that for Jim? And d- did you feel like um, there were things that you, you, you learned about Jim in the making of this movie that, that you wish you could have been able to say to him? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you always have kind of regrets or something that you're, you know, when you when you lose someone and you're like, oh, I never got a chance to tell him this or, you know, my my last text with Jim was right before it was like Thanksgiving before the last time he went into Syria and he was like, hey, I'm coming through New York, I got to pick up a helmet before I go back and I'll, you know, let me come through Brooklyn and see you and I and I, and I was like, God, I I'm, I can't I'm I got to do this, or I couldn't remember even what I did, and I didn't get a chance to see him. And, and that, you know, to this day, it's like, oh, you know, if I, I could have just seen him that last time. Well, Brian, thank you for making the film, and thank you for joining us on Extra Sauce. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, you guys. All right. That's a wrap on episode one of Extra Sauce. I'm going to go gargle with salt water or enjoy some tea and lemon mm-hmm. and work on getting my voice back. Well, how about the, what that guy suggested uh, this week? Uh, uh, 
taking a spoonful of Vicks mixed with sugar? Not happening. Okay. That, that, is, that right. is not happening. Your eyeballs will explode. Yeah. yeah. If there's something you would like to hear on Extra Sauce, tweet me, Greg Hill, W-A-A-F. And we'll be back next week with episode number two. Thanks for listening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.